You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, broadcasting from Washington, D.C. And today I'm delighted to be joined by a familiar guest on the podcast, uh, Shannon Tiazzi, The Diplomats Editor-in-Chief, is with me here today. Shannon, thanks for joining me. It's always a pleasure, Ankit. Well, so Shannon, we haven't done one of these episodes in a while, but I thought this would be a good time to take stock of the U.S.-China relationship. Really just looking at the big picture, uh, we're about eight months into the Biden administration. Um, we're almost uh, midway through September 2021, if you can believe it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I thought it would be good to sort of reflect on the broader themes we've seen in the U.S.-China relationship. There's generally a sense that we have seen a fair bit of continuity with the Biden administration um, coming in and retaining quite a bit of the Trump administration's policies. Uh, well, not all the policies, but generally the strategic outlook towards the relationship with China. And I thought actually, you know, one of the things that we could talk about to kind of kick the conversation off is the major place where there's a difference in how the administration thinks about um, potential paths for cooperation with China. One of the areas is, of course, climate change, where the Biden administration has a drastically different outlook from the Trump administration, to say the least. Um, and, you know, just recently we've had, uh, of course, um, high-level U.S.-China interactions on this issue with um, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry uh, meeting his Chinese counterparts, uh, discussing these issues. Kerry, of course, made the case that the U.S. and China must be able to cooperate on climate change as a, uh, as a standalone issue, to which um, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, uh, I think, rather poetically uh, pointed out that, you know, if the U.S. wants climate change to be a so-called oasis in U.S.-China relations, the U.S. needs to then make sure that this oasis is no longer surrounded by deserts. And I think what he's talking about here is China, you know, China's perception, and, and China's been calling for this for a while now, is for the United States to abandon this competitive mindset and really work towards so-called win-win cooperation with the United States. So when you when you look at what just happened, I mean— how do you think the Biden administration is going to sort of square this difference? Is Beijing going to reciprocate any any U.S. overtures to try and cooperate on issue-specific basis like climate change? Or, or do you think this is going to be um, more challenging than the Biden administration might have thought initially? I think we're seeing very clear signs from China that it's not interested in cooperating with the U.S. Um, on an issue-by-issue -issue basis when the relationship as a whole is so fraught. And um, we saw that with Kerry's visit, it was it was quite different in tone from his initial visit to China back in April, um, when he talked extensively with his counterpart, Xi Jinping, and the focus was really on climate. The two signed a joint statement um, outlining potential areas of cooperation on climate change. Uh, this time, we didn't really see that. Uh, Kerry still was officially hosted by Xie, uh, but he, he got a lot more headlines from his conversations, which were all virtual, by the way, which is interesting, um, with Foreign Minister Wang, with Yang Jiechi, and with uh, Politburo Standing Committee member Hang Zheng. And each of those three men had the same message for Kerry, which was, if you want cooperation from China on climate change, the relationship as a whole needs to adjust. And in particular, there was repeated reference to the um, two lists that China gave to uh, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman when she visited China back in July, um, essentially 
two lists of demands um, that China wants met before the relationship will return to an even keel. Um, that includes specific cases like Meng Wanzhou, the um, imprisoned Huawei executive who is in Canada um, fighting extradition to the United States. It also includes more broader things like revoking sanctions on Communist Party officials, um, you know, relaxing the scrutiny of Chinese students that both the Trump and the Biden administrations have ramped up in recent years. So that that's really been China's message is we gave you a list of demands. If you want any cooperation from us, then you need to move on those. Uh, that being said, I think that it's a bit uh, unrealistic to think that China's not going to do anything on climate change. Uh, as I wrote in my piece recapping Kerry's visit, China has its own reasons for wanting to act on climate change. This isn't the same as the U.S. trying to cajole China into cooperating on North Korea, for example, or um, even Afghanistan, which we've also seen several high-level conversations occur recently on that. China has deep-seated interests, um, both you know, in terms of trying to ameliorate the climate crisis, which is going to impact China as much as any other country in the world, but also in terms of China wants to position itself to be a leader in these industries that it sees as, you know, the strategic leading industries in the future of renewable energy, electric cars, things like that. So I think basically what China is saying is not, we are not going to do anything on climate change. You know, this isn't a case of China saying, we're not going to reduce emissions just as a way to get back at the US, but they don't want to hand the US something that could be spun as a political victory in US-China diplomacy. So we can expect anything that China does in the lead up to the UN climate summit this November to be unilateral, um, possibly bilateral with another partner, um, for example, the EU. But I wouldn't pin your hopes on any major breakthrough in the US-China front specifically. Yeah. And, you know, zooming out a little bit, I mean, what is the diagnosis in Beijing of the Biden administration's China policy, right? I mean, things like the two lists, obviously, I think are quite unlikely to be persuasive uh, to, you know, the Biden administration, right? The United States isn't going to fundamentally have a change of heart at this moment. So when you when you sort of look at what's being said at the at the highest levels uh, on the relationship in Beijing, um, it seems to me at least that China doesn't expect this relationship to get better anytime soon either, even if it's positioning itself as, you know, um, an equal with the United States that's that's seeking to make these demands. So where do things go from here if you're in Beijing? That is um, a very difficult question that I don't think even Beijing knows. <laughs> they obviously have the, these two lists of things that they want addressed. And what's interesting is almost everything on that list is a holdover from the Trump administration. So it's not that the Biden administration is really making its own moves that are you know, extremely displeasing to Beijing, although there have been some additional sanctions imposed on Chinese officials, for example. But a lot of this is simply Biden hasn't revoked policies that Trump already had in place. Um, you know, the tariffs that Trump put on Chinese goods, those are for the most part still there. Um, Meng Wanzhou, obviously, you know, she was arrested in Canada under the Trump administration. Um, so I think in that sense, there's this weird sort of stability where Biden's administration hasn't really upped the ante in U.S.-China relations. But Beijing was hoping, and I think, frankly, they were unrealistically hoping for an improvement in the relationship under Biden. Um, 
you know, I don't know if it's a case of just wishful thinking that they wanted the relationship to go back to the pre-Trump status quo, or if they genuinely believed that Trump was an aberration and they missed the broader sea change, um, you know, across both aisles, bipartisan, pretty much across the board um, in the analytical community on U.S.-China policy, um, where most uh, U.S. analysts are broadly supportive of these measures that have been taken, and particularly of the Biden approach, which is much more inclusive of allies and trying to discuss steps with them rather than, you know, policy by tweet, as we had under the Trump administration. So I think Beijing is trying to test out what strategies might work um, to convince Biden to move on some of these things. So we have the straight up demands, uh, the two lists that were given to Sherman, which, as you noted, are incredibly unlikely to generate any sort of movement um, from the Biden administration. We also have this sort of carrot and stick approach that was dangled before Kerry on his visit, which is if you want us to cooperate with you on a highly touted priority for the Biden administration, in this case, climate change, then you need to give us what we want in these other fields. Um, again, I don't know if this is going to be successful, because particularly on the issue of climate change, we can expect China to move forward on its own, regardless of U.S. cooperation. And I would expect the Biden administration to know that. So we're just kind of stuck um, yeah. in this frozen state of the relationship as a holdover from the Trump administration. And I think as evidence of that, there's been pretty uh, limited high-level diplomatic contact. Uh, obviously, Kerry has been to China twice, as I mentioned, and Deputy Secretary Sherman visited China. But even that trip almost didn't happen. Uh, she was in Asia before it was formally announced that, yes, she is going to China after all. Uh, there have been no visits by Chinese officials to the U.S. since uh, the meeting in Anchorage, uh, which obviously did not go particularly well. There's been one direct phone call between Xi Jinping and Biden way back in February. There's just not a lot of exchange happening, um, which it's hard to see anything changing if the two sides aren't really talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I also just want to like reflect for a moment on the continuity narrative, which, you know, like most things is a little oversimplified. You know, when you look in at uh, particularly on the economic side of things, you know, the Biden administration, for instance, have eased off of uh, some of the Trump era executive orders on um, banning, for instance, TikTok and WeChat. Huawei, of all companies, received a license waiver uh, in, in late August to uh, buy auto chips from U.S. suppliers. So there is a little bit of change at the micro level. And, you know, I think one important caveat here is, um, you know, when you have a partisan transition uh, like we've just witnessed this year from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, a lot of these things just won't change rapidly in the first year. The administration is still staffing up. Strategic guidance documents are still being um, fundamentally, I think, prepared. You know, policy planning at state is still working through many of the hairy issues related more broadly to the relationship with China. So by early 2022, mid-2022, a lot of these issues, I think, will be much clearer, and then we'll have a clearer sense of the Biden administration's strategic direction. I think the inertia that we see in sort of the first six to eight months of a new administration is is somewhat to be expected. It's a, it's a little risky to make sort of sharp turns without necessarily having a, a broader uh, set of, of um, um, a strategic guidance, so to speak, for a, a whole of government effort. 
I wanted to come back to a point you raised about the Biden administration's um, emphasis on alliances, uh, which was something that Biden said as a candidate uh, that he emphasized in his inaugural address, that he emphasized early uh, into uh, his uh, presidential term by releasing an interim um, national security s- uh, strategy document. Um, from the Chinese side, uh, this focus on alliances, I think, has been, again, perceived to be sort of the Biden administration ramping up efforts to contain China, right? Uh, for instance, um the the summit with Prime Minister Suga of Japan uh, very prominently and directly addressed uh, issues related to the Taiwan Strait, to the relationship with China more broadly. There's been similar efforts with uh, other U.S. allies. Uh, the Quad has received a, a significant um, degree of attention from the Biden administration. So when it comes to the emphasis on allies, how do you think that's being perceived right now in China? Uh, you know, this this narrative, of course, that the U.S. is seeking to contain China goes back even before Trump uh, to the Obama administration. Um, but do you think that the Biden administration's emphasis on, on alliances is being perceived by Beijing as uh, something that, again, I think is antithetical to an improvement in U.S.-China relations? Yes, I think that this uh, has Beijing fairly nervous. And you saw that when Yang Jiechi went on this lengthy tirade um, in his meeting with uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in Anchorage, um, where he said the U.S. is in no position to say it's dealing with China from a position of strength. Um, very defensive. And that is a response to the U.S. mantra that by engaging its allies and working together, the U.S. is dealing with China from a position of strength. And that is very much not something that China is happy to see. Uh, One thing that the Trump administration gave to China was that it was simultaneously as it was ramping up movements against China, it was also pursuing actions against U.S. allies um, in some cases. You know, there were trade tariffs and talk of trade tariffs on U.S. allies in Europe, um, Japan, South Korea. Obviously, the question of how much U.S. allies pay to maintain these alliances became very fraught under Trump in a way that it is not under Biden. So I think China saw the potential to drive a wedge in these alliances under Trump, and that is dwindling um, under Biden, not to say that it's completely gone and the alliances are 100% repaired, because as you said, these things take time, right? Um, But, you know, China has been trying very eagerly to get Europe on side um, to say, we have more in common than the unilateral US, which doesn't respect multilateral trade systems like the WTO. And that had a lot more pull, um, although still, frankly, quite limited under the Trump administration than it does under Biden. And what China absolutely does not want to see is some of the unilateral policies rolled out under Trump being engaged across the board by, you know, for example, the G7. If you talk about you know, sanctions on Huawei, for example, those would be a lot more effective if U.S. allies were brought on board and they were instituted as a group instead of just unilaterally by the United States. Um, that being said, it's still not clear how much of an appetite some of the U.S. allies have for actual concrete action Uh, to that extent. Uh, Certainly, there's a lot of agreement on the rhetoric um, of a rules-based international order and the importance of liberal values and human rights. But when it comes to actually sanctioning China, um, that's a much tougher sell. What we might see some more of is 
what we could call positive pushback against China, where instead of trying to punish China for something it's doing, um, the U.S. and its allies are presenting an alternative. Uh, the, the Build Back Better World initiative is an example of that. It's not directly attacking the Belt and Road, but it's saying, well, we can do this too, and maybe we can do it better to, than China. Um, but, it, you know, it's it got kind of roundly quit criticized by experts in the field for being a lot of talk and not much substance. Um, and so far, again, as you said, it's still very early. Um, we're not even a full year into the Biden administration at this point. Uh, but it, it still remains to be seen how much the European allies, uh, Japan, you know, and some partners like South Korea and India might be even more hesitant to get on board with a strong counter China initiative. Mm -hmm. Before, you know, before moving on to um, um, Afghanistan, which I certainly do want to get to. Uh, and, and by the way, listeners, I know a lot has happened in Afghanistan since the last episode of the podcast. Uh, we will uh, return to Afghanistan uh, in, a, in a dedicated series of episodes that I have planned. Um, but Shannon, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the politics of um, U.S.-China policy uh, here in Washington. Um, the Biden administration, I think, uh, of course, entered office at a time when I think interest in bipartisanship was generally quite low. Um, but China policy has been one of the areas where I think we've seen a significant degree of uh, cooperation across the aisle. Um, for instance, I think, you know, the, the way in which the Strategic Competition Act uh, was handled in the Senate uh, with, um, you know, Democratic and Republican senators supporting the strengthening of overseas aid provisions to compete with Chinese uh, development assistance to countries in Africa and Latin America, for instance. Um, there's broadly a sense that whatever Biden is doing in China uh, is is something that is broadly supported with a bipartisan consensus. And, you know, there are places where uh, Republicans have criticized Biden on uh, details, right? I, I talked a bit about the backing down on uh, TikTok, WeChat, and uh, the licensing for Huawei uh, buying auto chips. Those have all received criticism, any any measures that are perceived as, quote, soft on China. But the, the politics right now in D.C., uh, you know, the winds are clearly blowing in the direction of sustaining this broadly competitive approach uh, to U.S.-China relations. Uh, this question's a little bit odd because I, you know, I want to, I, I want to sort of ask you about whether you see this sort of continuing um, through Biden's first term, or do you think that you know there might be sort of um, variables that could change this leading into the midterm elections? For instance, are Republicans going to seek to paint Biden, for instance, as weak on China national security issues? Uh, we're seeing a little, a little bit of this, of course, with the discourse around uh, the way in which the Afghanistan withdrawal was handled. Uh, what's your sense about um, just how? how tenacious this um, broader bipartisan consensus in, in D.C. is likely to be over uh, the next year or so? Um, I think there's definitely going to be an attempt to paint Biden as uh, weak on China and weak on national security. But for the same reason, the Republicans won't want to really counter any proposals that Biden does put forward. Um, to respond to what we can call the China challenge. That's kind of the in vogue phrase right now because the Republicans don't want to be painted as weak on China. So Biden kind of has guaranteed a certain level of cooperation from Republicans on China issues specifically. And what's been interesting to me is to see how he has managed to parlay that into um, some even domestic policy. The infrastructure bill um, that's currently working its way through, you know, that was was really 
build as this is how we counter China by strengthening the U.S. at home. And we've heard that mantra repeated over and over again. But now it's actually being used to sell a domestic bill. Um, so that's, I think, how strong the, you know, tough on China uh, image resonates with both parties is that you can frame a completely unrelated, if you think about it directly, a policy issue in terms of this China narrative, and you can guarantee a boost in support for it, uh, even though there's obviously a lot of quibbles, even within the Democratic Party, about the focus and the scope of the bill. Um you, Biden was more likely to get support for it when he brought China into the picture. And I think this is going to stay um, in part because I don't see any huge change forthcoming in China's actions. And this is something that often gets left out of these discussions because we talk so much about this starting under Trump, um, who was you know, obviously very unusual in terms of his foreign policy making process, to say the very least. But I think regardless of if Trump in an alternate reality had not been elected, we probably would have seen some sort of stronger U.S. pushback, um, even under a hypothetical Hillary Clinton administration, because China's own behavior has changed so much uh, since Obama was elected in 2012. Whoever came to office in 2016 was going to have to change the way the U.S. was handling China. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's not it's not just the United States. I mean, you know, Xi Jinping's China has, of course, um, exhibited behaviors uh, both in its near periphery and internally that I think would have drawn any U.S. administration uh, to a more confrontational posture. I completely agree with that. Um, before we close out today, Shannon, I did want to uh, take advantage of having you on the episode today to ask you a little bit about um, the situation in Afghanistan and how China perceives that to affect its interests. Uh, of course, um, you know, part, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in D.C. I don't want to get into the debates about U.S. credibility and so forth, which I think are a little bit uh, silly more generally. Of course, you know, Biden had been quite open about his intention to withdraw from Afghanistan. I mean, really, he was clear about that going back to uh, the surge uh, when he was um, a vice president uh, and his um, conviction that this war no longer served U.S. interests even 10 years ago. Um, but now, you know, um, the, uh, the administration has made the case that uh, pulling out of Afghanistan, despite how poorly the withdrawal was conducted in practice, will allow the United States to regroup and focus its resources on the Indo-Pacific, uh, containing China, supporting the rules-based order there, uh, uh, so far and so forth. And how, um, how, you know, what's your sense of how Beijing is handling the transition now with the return of the Taliban? China, of course, uh, had made overtures to the Taliban um, uh, as early as uh, this summer uh, and even potentially earlier, anticipating such an outcome. But broadly speaking, uh, do you think that this is a welcome development for for China or something that I think Beijing, uh, that you think Beijing will uh, view with a degree of trepidation uh, and potentially see as a disadvantage? I don't think the rise of the Taliban is being greeted with any particular enthusiasm in Beijing. Uh, and you can see that if you read between the lines of what they have been saying. Um, there's been a lot of haranguing of the U.S. saying your chaotic withdrawal has you know, caused this mess in Afghanistan. Um, and 
of course, they're part of that is opportunistic. Um, they're they're trying to not not that the U.S. needs any help looking bad in the after the fall of Kabul, but they're trying to hammer home, as you said, attacking the U.S. for its credibility, um, for supposedly abandoning Afghanistan, and also really taking this opportunity to question the whole project of nation building and whether liberal values are really universal um, in, a, in a broader sense. But just because China is trying to make the best of the situation doesn't mean that they're happy with it. Um, and we have seen an alarming rise in terrorist attacks on Chinese projects in Pakistan. Uh, that is very much linked to strengthening of the Pakistani Taliban as the Afghan Taliban has gained power. And I think that this is something that China and Pakistan and Afghanistan are going to continue to wrestle with. Um, the Taliban have said they are very interested in a friendly relationship with China. They want China to invest in Afghanistan. They welcome China's help in rebuilding their country. But it's hard to see the Taliban truly cracking down on transborder terrorism, particularly um, the TTP and terrorist attacks across the border into Pakistan. And that impacts China, um, both in the sense that it creates a less stable environment on China's western border, and also in the sense that China has quite a lot of money invested in Pakistan. It has quite a lot of its people working in Pakistan, who now appear to have targets on their back. Um, and that's very concerning for Beijing. So I think the question is, and this is what no one really knows at this point, is how serious are the Taliban about saying that they've changed? Um, are they truly willing to play ball with China in the way that China wants and truly crack down on you know, Islamic extremism, which then feeds into terrorism and truly crack down on foreign fighters in Afghanistan? Um, and I don't think we've seen any evidence so far that that's something the Taliban are willing to do, regardless of how much they're saying they want to cooperate with China. Absolutely. You know, I think uh, you've pointed to a very interesting triangle, too, between, uh, you know, Beijing, the Taliban in Kabul and uh, the Pakistani um, military establishment, uh, which continues to have uh, important sway with the Taliban leadership. So it'll be interesting to see how Beijing um, not only weighs on Pakistan to potentially make sure that uh, its interests aren't adversely affected, but also how China might use financial levers to approach the new government, uh, which I think is going to have tremendous fiscal difficulties with the uncertainty about uh, how a Taliban government of Afghanistan will fund any of its activities, um, overseas aid if and when it can be provided, uh, and, and if China can provide any kind of economic inducements to sustain uh, ongoing projects from before the fall of Kabul or potentially establish new projects, all of that could be important sources of leverage. But it'll certainly be something that, uh, you know, we'll keep a close eye on. Uh, and um, once we know more, hopefully uh, I can have you back on to do a dedicated episode on uh, China uh, and Afghanistan and Pakistan. That'd be, I think, certainly something uh, worthwhile. But uh, Shannon, unfortunately, that's all the time we had today. But thank you so much for uh, joining me today to uh, talk through U.S.-China relations uh, so far into the Biden administration and to reflect a little bit on Afghanistan and a few other issues. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Ankit, and I'll talk to you next time, I'm sure. For listeners, if you've listened to the podcast for a while but you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. You can do so on Apple Podcasts, uh, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your shows. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so as well. That really helps get the word out about the show, and we really do appreciate that. If you have suggestions for future topics or guests, uh, please feel free to contact me either by email or on Twitter. Very happy to take that into consideration. 
Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll be back soon with more.